I apologize for breaking up all the Infinity War conversations that are happening or the draft, NFL draft conversations that are happening. Although I, I do believe the Lord may want us to speak about the Redskins draft in a few moments. I'm still waiting to hear from the Lord. Don't get me started. I know. That's why you came today, right? This was that. That's our Redskins expert right there. So, oh, man. No, okay, Lord, I, won't. I wanted to talk about Affinity War just for a minute. Just like a minute or two. Oh, you haven't seen it yet? All right, get behind me, Satan. You should have seen. You should have seen that already. Now, no spoilers. No spoilers. His name isn't Simon, though. I open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We will pick up uh, in verse 6 today. And, and as you turn there, I want to remind us of something that many of us are aware of, but it's good sometimes to just state the obvious, the states things that are obvious, that we all know this to be true. But there is, if you are a Christian, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you, you know that we live sort of in this great tension. There is a tension that we live in of, of God's grace and God's wrath. And, and there are times when we look at particular passages that, that we do some of the things that the passage is speaking to. And the language of the passage is very direct. It's God is going to take action. And so there can be this, this tension that we live in, in, in the midst of just being a Christian in this life is how do we make sure that we stay clear from this and, and do that. And what, what are these, these statements about believers, who, who people who profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but then, but then do something different? And then are we supposed to pay attention to those details and, and all of those things that it can become somewhat overwhelming to figure this out because there is a great tension that God intentionally placed people who believe in him in, in this world so as to not get so comfortable with this world that we, we fight and we, we make sure we gut check ourselves and we persevere. The, the idea of persevering in the Bible is not stated because the Christian life makes sense all the time or that it's easy. If it were easy, then there wouldn't be that many other, other religions. In fact, many people, many of us have interacted with people which we'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about as, the, as we walk through verses 6 to 11. But many of us interact with people who tend to see their Christianity from what they have to give up. So sort of, I don't, want to, I don't want to not do this. I don't want to give up this. I don't want to not do this. I don't want to be able to, I don't want those parameters. It seems like too much control. It seems too like much of a rule. So there's this great tension in the Bible. And, and, and solid theology doesn't remove the tension. It only helps explain the tension. And so last week was one of those messages where there's a real tension in verses 1 through 5 of Romans, where, where God shifts from, Paul on behalf of God, he shifts from talking about people who rejected God, and he lists all these sins from 18 to 32 that are just 
categorizing this group of people and God's judgment of people towards those sins. And then, as I said that last week, it comes sort of a sucker punch to us in Romans 2, verses 1 through 5, where he begins to address whoever the individuals are that are judging other people and do the same things. And by judging, condemning people. And by condemning people, it's essentially you're treating people as their sins deserve. Only God has the moral authority to treat people as their sins deserve. And so his point was, you're treating people as their sins deserve and condemning them, yet you do the same things. So you talk about people talking about people behind their back, behind their back. <laughs> you are complaining about people who complain. You are judging people thinking that they're judging you. That's why Jesus said the measure in which you judge others will be used against you also. There are people in this room who are judging other people that they're judging them because you judge people. So you automatically assume people are judging you. That's how this works. There's a tension. There's a tension to being a believer. And it doesn't just go away because we know that Christ died on the cross for our sins. That doesn't make the tension go away. If we're honest, it can be very difficult at times to sort of walk the line of faithfulness. And this is why God highlights consistently that those who persevere to the end, those who persist, those who actually continue to trust God, even when the circumstances don't call for it, when the culture doesn't look like it understands it, when it's actually more beneficial in the moment to not trust the Lord, he says, look, I'm rewarding those of you who do so. So there is this tension of the Christian life that just doesn't go away. There are theological tensions like Jesus being fully God and fully man. If he was always God, then how did that work when he was down here on earth and not in heaven? And there's so many different things that come up. Then there's things about our own lives like, okay, how do I know I'm really saved? Okay, I profess to believe and I do this. But then we see people who we thought were saved walk away from the faith. That's happened in our church. There is a tension. And so God in his word speaks directly into that tension and tries to be very clear when things are unclear. And this morning's passage, I believe, will bring some clarity to the tension of obedience. And I think this question, God, God, God in his Bible last week, he asked a couple of questions. He asked us a few questions. Do you, do you presume on the grace of God and not realize that God's kindness and patience leads you to repentance? This is what he means by that question. Do you honestly think that you can come to church and not care about that and there be no immediate consequences and think there will be no eternal consequences? This is what God is getting at. You see, I, I can't, I don't know everyone. I can't judge you. I can only look at body language and facial expressions. And by that, I can be like, they look like they're not really glad to be here. They look like they don't really care. I can maybe think that in my mind, but I don't have the moral authority to know that because I'm not the Lord, but he does. So he knows what's really going on. And so he uses these kind of, this language to say, listen, if you think because there are no immediate consequences to your actions that there will be no eternal ones, you are mistaken. 
If you think that there's no immediate consequences for your sinful judgment, you are mistaken. If you think there are no immediate consequences to being unforgiving and cold towards people, you are mistaken. If you think there are no immediate consequences for your outbursts of anger, you are mistaken. So he's saying, look, the fact that there aren't immediate consequences and God's not condemned you to hell yet is his kindness. So this passage in verses 6 through 11, after coming off of 1 through 5, this direct sucker punch, now we address from God's perspective always when we read Scripture. We go from speaking to people and warning them of this impending reality to now God explaining sort of the two groups of people that he's talking about and what will be the eternal consequences for each of them. This this passage, the context of this passage is not in this life is what he's talking about. He's talking about in judgment. And so here's what he says, beginning in verse 6. He says, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. Verse 9, there will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. Let's pray. Father, your word is, is given to us. First, it's written to particular people at a particular time, but because it's your word, it's written to your people for all time. And while not every verse is a one-size-fits-all for all of your people through all time, there are moments where your word speaks directly to, the, to where we may be. It speaks directly to how we may think and how we may feel and how we may act. But it also speaks directly to things that we haven't experienced yet, like, like what's in this passage. And you are saying that these are true based upon who you are, not based upon what we're aware of or what we're able to comprehend. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would allow us to zoom in some to this passage and, and look at some of the particulars of the details and both be freshly encouraged where appropriate and both be challenged where appropriate. And I ask that you would, you would allow them to hear a message that's better than I can deliver because your word and your spirit is impressed upon their hearts. This passage is really self-explanatory, Lord. It, it can be read and clearly understood. I don't even have to say much. But the little bit that I do have to say this morning, Father, I pray that you would use it for your glory. And whatever's true, may it bring about the appropriate response. And whatever's off or in error, may it be forgotten. May I not bind anyone's conscience in a way that it shouldn't be bound by your word. But may no one with a hardened heart think that their conscience shouldn't be bound. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Let's begin at verse 6. He says this, he will repay each one according to his works. This, this is, in my translation, it's, it's boldened. That, that particular phrase is in bold because it's drawing attention to that it's taking this idea, this language from other parts of the Bible. So in Psalm 62, 12, it says, it says this, and faithful love belongs to you, Lord, for you repay each according to his works. Proverbs 24, 12 says, if you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? So he's talking about people who, who sin in certain ways and then say, but we didn't know about this. I was ignorant. I didn't know this. He says, won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? Now, this is a very serious statement about the character of God, and it makes a couple of assumptions, at least two the first assumption that it makes is that the God that it described in Romans 1 verses 18 through 23 that created the world and that has this character that people rejected and decided to worship the actual created things rather than the creator, that, that God, this assumes that you actually believe that that God exists and that that God has a standard of living that it wants people to respond to. So this passage is making an assumption he will repay everyone according to his works. It's making an assumption that we believe that God is powerful enough to actually do that, to repay people according to their deeds. And by works, it just means thoughts, actions, and words. It makes an assumption that we believe that. But it also makes another assumption without saying these words. It makes an assumption that we actually believe that God, and using these theological terms, omniscient and omnipresent. It makes an assumption that we believe that God is omniscient, meaning all-knowing, and that he's omnipresent, meaning all-seeing. He's everywhere. So in order for us to know that he's going to repay people according to their deeds, according to our works, then we have to believe that, one, he has the sufficient knowledge to do that, which means we believe that he knows everything that we say, think, and do, and that he's seen it. You know, in the culture, there's, this, there's a lot of people use a lot of, a lot of cell phone footage or or, or body cams or different things to try to capture moments and, and, and piece things together to, to show what happened. I mean, much of the headlines that we, we see today in terms of culture or law enforcement or whatever it is, they all come from video footage taken by someone's phone or, or some dash cam or some type of video footage to, to show an evidence of what they're saying. And often, almost always, the majority of that footage is incomplete. Like it, it started in the middle or it cut off at the end. Only on a few occasions do we see the intro and the outro and then we make judgments based upon that. Millions of views, 34, 44, 54 million views, thousands of comments making judgment on six and a half minutes of footage to gather up a whole story. Well, see, whoever filmed it didn't have all, it's not, didn't have the sufficient, the sufficient knowledge. They, weren't, they couldn't see all of it. And we can't see all of it, but we weigh in anyway. Well, see, God doesn't need a body cam or a phone. He sees all of it. So there will be no, like, well, Lord, I did, I, I, there won't be any of that. There will just be the footage 
the judge, and your rebuttal, your response. In order for God to repay people for their works, we must understand that he has the moral authority, but also the attributes to do so. And this is what can make it challenging, because, you know, one of the funny things about, like, fear of man, you know the funniest thing about fear of man? I say funny, and I'm being somewhat facetious because it's not funny. It's a real struggle that people have. I understand that. I'm not minimizing people who struggle with fear of man. So this is more rhetoric. One of the funny things about fear of man is that it makes how other people feel and what they do and what they could do to you more important because they, you presently see them. That's the funny thing about it. But they're not, they don't always see you, though. They don't even know what's in your heart and stuff. They may judge you. They don't even know, based on your body language, what you're thinking and feeling. So what makes fear of man so wild is that you can be more worried about what other people think than God, who knows everything that you think, see, and feel. This is why he says fear of man proves to be a snare because it will stop you from obeying God at times because you're afraid of disobeying the people that can see you. But, they, but we lack the ability. No one knows what you think all the time. No one knows how you feel. No one knows if you're lifting your hands in worship because you believe it or because you're worried about people thinking if you don't lift your hands, you're faking. No one knows if you don't lift your hands in worship, if you don't care, if it's because you're just quietly meditating on the words that are being sung. No one knows that. But the Lord knows that. He knows that. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. This verse is a statement about the awesome power and authority of God just by itself. I mean, he will repay everyone according to his works. Think of all of the people that have ever lived. And he will repay Every single one of them for thoughts, words, and actions. And there will be no excuses in that day for any of us. There are certain questions I'm not looking forward to. Because I believe God will ask them. This verse, verse 6, is also pushing back against those who judge and condemn, who act as if they have that moral authority to judge other people and treat them as their sins deserve. It pushes back against them because they don't have it. So on the one hand, verse 6, this verse is supposed to bring a measure of terror to those of us who think that God's patience means his acceptance of what we're doing. Verse 6 is supposed to be like, wow. Like, I'm not experiencing immediate consequences. But he is going to say something. There will be consequences. On the one hand, it should bring a bit of terror and fear. And not think that, okay, good, I'm just doing this and nothing's happening. And so I'm good. Because nobody has seen this yet. 
But on the other hand, it's supposed to bring comfort to those of us who are not taking advantage of God's grace by, by presuming on it and who are actively trying to honor the Lord. So this verse also brings comfort because he's saying God sees what you are doing. The prayers that we think are unanswered, God hears those prayers. The tears that we think are unseen, God is right there. The resisting of temptation, even though it feels, feels in the flesh more desirable to do it than to not do it, God sees what's there. So on the one hand, the people that come to church and they're not tripping, you got your headphones in, you're doing all that stuff, God sees what's there. You're not cool to me. God will address you. And will tell you that you were here for my sake to hear this word for your soul's sake. He's not playing. This is not just happening by osmosis. God is doing a work. And every time you come and hear his word, he wants you to hear that particular word, whether you like the preaching or not, whether you like the singing or not. God is watching and will repay according to our works. And that brings both terror and comfort. It's encouraging to know that God sees you. He sees you fighting. And he will reward you for doing so. When no one else is noticing you, he does. But just like the consequences for disobedient are not always present, neither are the blessings for obedience. They're not always present. There are people in this room who are fighting loneliness, battling loneliness, fighting, struggling. God knows that he's not physical. He knows that it requires faith for you to trust that he's even listening. And he sees the faithfulness of you too, to still trust him, to still pray, to still go to your D group. The awkwardness after church to wait around and figure out who to talk to. He sees that. But the blessing isn't always immediate. Friendships don't always come in the moment neither does the disobedience. Verse 4, his patience leads us to repentance. So he warns us, I see you. I'm going to have a conversation with you about this. And that conversation will go depending on how you respond now 
not then. Because when that conversation happens then, it's too late. It's too late. God is watching. He repays. He's watching. You know, there's, they always say there's two kinds of people in this world. This passage reveals that there's two kinds of people in this world. Clearly, from God's perspective, there really are. There's one group of people who make decisions on how to think, feel, and act based primarily on what they think honors the Lord. And then there's one group that makes decisions on how they think, feel, and act based primarily on what they think, how they feel, and how they act. And the Lord is not in it. And this question isn't in the text, but it begs the question, which one are you? This question I'm asking, which one am I? And if I feel like I'm in, I'm in the middle, I'm kind of both of them, then that's good too. Because I want to get to the side that's really trying to honor the Lord and not stay in this middle. Because I don't want to presume on grace. I don't want you to question when I die. You think he made it? I don't know, man. I don't know. Which one are you? Well, the next four verses will explain in specific detail about how God feels about each of these two groups of people. So in verse six, he says he will repay each one according to his works. And in verse seven, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. So first he's dealing with the people who are actually pursuing, trying to honor the Lord. So he speaks to those people first in verse 7. Now this term, eternal life, gets thrown out a lot. That's in the Bible a lot, eternal life. And the reason why that term is in there, and it's interesting because everyone, is based on our understanding of eternity, well, we believe that some people will spend an eternity with God, worshiping God and Jesus and, and be in heaven, and some people will spend an eternity without God in hell and in turmoil, torment. So eternal life is sort of this reality that we know, but eternal life actually has a very specific meaning, biblically speaking. It's not just describing that everyone lives forever. Eternal life is very specific. Let me explain. You don't have to turn there unless you got quicker hands. But in Revelation chapter 20, I want to read verses 7 through 15, and here's what it says. This is at the end of all things. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. 
and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by which was written in the books, in the book of life. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each one was judged according to their works. So let me make sure you understand. Everybody. So the people who were killed by sharks in the sea. The people who died in their sleep. People who died exploded in planes. People who died in space. Everyone stands before this throne. Verse 14 says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see what this is saying? The words eternal life are speaking primarily about, from a biblical perspective, life with God. Because those who do not inherit eternal life experience a second death. Now, this is a theology called annihilationism about hell. Some people think that people will be destroyed. I don't see that. I think people will continue to live, but it will be death because you were living apart from God. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's also an eternity. So there is no life apart from Jesus Christ. So eternal life, biblically speaking, is only really dealing with those people who inherit it as a gift for believing and living for Jesus Christ in the here and now. And by the way, the judgment day of verse 5 is what he was alluding to in this scene. That great day of judgment in verse 5 when it says, Because of your heart and unrepentant heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. That's revelation, this scene. Everyone will stand there, and there will be no excuses. There will be nothing. The books will be opened. Your deeds will be before everyone. And your eternal destination will be finally revealed in that moment. Everyone lives forever. But everyone doesn't enjoy life forever. Eternal life, that's why it goes to verse 7. Those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and mortality. Persistence is essentially perseverance. Why do you have to be persistent? Because it's hard. It's hard. The only people who think it's not hard are people who aren't living it. Those are the only people who think it was hard. You know, you know what the Pharisees did? The Pharisees didn't think obeying God's law was hard at all because they didn't do it. They just came up with new laws and rules for other people to do. That's why it wasn't hard to them. It was like, what's the problem? Don't do this. Don't work on the Sabbath. They had this, this, there was this, they had these set of rules on the Sabbath which you, which you couldn't, couldn't do in the mission. And it was like, 600 and I think 17 different rules that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. It was what people couldn't do, not them, though. That's why Jesus was like, who of you, if you had an ox fall into a pit, wouldn't ask a friend to help you on the Sabbath? But you're going to get mad because I'm going to heal this man's hand on the Sabbath? As if God cares more about that ox 
than he does this man's hand? God doesn't work for Peter. God, I don't think Peter's from the Lord. God cares about people. Animal lovers don't judge me after this. I'm not. I can see it now. Hey, I mean, there's a scripture that says, hey. God cares about people. Persistence. Perseverance. It's hard. And so persistence, you fight. This is an active fight. It's an active fight. It's active. It's a fight. If you've ever been in a fight, the person who doesn't fight gets beat up. The only time I've seen it work well was in Star Wars Episode Four when Obi-Wan told Darth Vader, if you strike me down, I'll be stronger than before, and then he let him kill him. Apart from that, you, you get beat up. You got to fight. You got to fight back. In Star Wars, it worked out because he was able to talk with Luke and do all that stuff, and if y'all seen the movie, you know what happens. Luke brushed off his, the dust in Episode Nine. So I get, I get all of that. With it. But the point is, it's hard work. Persistence is what God is looking for. He's looking for people to say, Lord, I don't like this. This is very hard, but I trust you. He's looking for people to be like, my classmates all live the total opposite of this. They mock me for going to church or for not doing the things they do. And I want to be liked by them. I want to be liked by these people. I want to be cool with these folks. This is my man. I want to hang out with them. But I'm choosing not to do some of these things because I want to follow you. He sees that. That's persistence. He sees that. Because it's hard. It's not passive. Maturity is not inevitable. It's not. And it's not just knowledge. Oh, I know the Bible. Do you know how many Bible scholars there are? I laugh every time I watch these, these history channel documentaries of these Bible scholars, and they get on and they talk about what the Bible means and all of this. And then I wait. All it takes is a matter of minutes to see if they're Bible scholars that believe or Bible scholars who know the words. It just takes you a couple of minutes. And then one of them would be like, yeah, well, you know, a lot of the mythology, man, that's the key word. You don't believe, baby. So it's like, all right. Now I can still listen to what you're saying, but it's like, you're not a Bible scholar. You may understand the words. A Bible scholar is one who lives it, though. You're a Bible scholar, not when you can articulate the archaeological findings that connect to what this was and to prove that this location or Jacob's well actually really was here because we got archaeological stuff that can prove that this is true and that makes you a Bible scholar. No, from God's perspective, the people where Jesus said it best, who are my mother, sister and brothers? Those who believe in me. Those are the people that he cares about. Your knowledge of the scripture means nothing to God. He's not impressed. He's impressed by your submission to the scriptures. And so that's why he goes into this. He says, glory. Look at this. For eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory. He's not talking about your own glory. He's talking about glory that honors the Lord. You're seeking God's glory. And at the same time, you're seeking glory that God is going to give back to you for pursuing him. That's the, the wildest thing to me about believing in Jesus is that we couldn't do anything apart from him, 
but he's going to reward us for doing things that honor him. For what, though? For what? Like going to heaven is good enough. Not being judged. It's not like, it's like no one here is going to stand before the Lord and be like, man, I did a lot of good stuff. Like, I'm good. Like, I don't deserve to go to heaven. Like, I'm, I'm right, right, Lord. Like, no one's going to say that. If you do, I will be on the other side of the city. Because there's no way. Right? None of us are going to say that. You're going to get to heaven because you had faith in the Lord. Because of Jesus Christ. And then because you took him at his word and you believe that his spirit was in you, even though it doesn't feel like it, you believe that his spirit is in you and giving you the desire and the ability to obey him. And even though you stumble and fall at times, you believe that God is still going to forgive you when you die because you believe in Jesus and you are making an effort to honor him. That's it. And God's going to reward us. He's going to give us honor. We share in the honor of Jesus Christ. That isn't, that's ridiculous to me. There's a reason why those 24 elders cast those crowns in Revelation 4. For what? What does this crown mean in terms of his? It's just seeking glory, honor, and immortality. Every time I hear the word immortality, it reminds me of movies with men with British accents that talk about immortality and pursuing. It's just always this, this idea. I never think of immortality as I think of like Highlander. There can be only one. And you're, that was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Long story. So this idea of immortality is only in the scripture five times. Five times this word. And biblically speaking, it means when you're seeking immortality, it's not seeking to live forever. That's the, wor that's the world's definition of it. Biblically speaking, immortality means you're seeking an incorruptibleness of purity. That's what immortality, how can you seek living forever? Like it's just going to happen. Unless you count the second death, not living, which that's no life to me. In my heart, I pray that none of us, I pray that none of us, Experience that. Immortality, biblically speaking, means an incorruptibleness, a purity, a purity that will live with God peacefully. This is it. This is what it means to go after it. This is why we do some of the things that we do as a church and why it can be challenging when it doesn't, when things don't come together. Because none of us are having meetings for the sake of having meetings. We don't care. I don't care if your D group is like the best or not. Like the purpose of it is so that we are living life together. Because we're competing with all this other stuff. We have a Sunday school so that we can get into some theological training and talk about things that open up our hearts afresh from God. We have preaching and singing, and we need people to serve, and we do different meetings. We have family meetings and different things that we talk about, not because we feel like taking up your time. Every one of those meetings is a work meeting to me. I don't look forward to Fridays. Fridays ain't my weekend. I got work most Saturdays. And if I'm doing a message, I'm working. It, it could be all day Saturday. We do this stuff because we are trying to get to a place 
that we can't see, but that we believe is true based upon what he says in his word. And we know that we need one another to help us get there. This is why we do this. This is why we do it. As God is explaining the to those who are in verse seven, those of us who are trying to actively honor the Lord, he turns his attention, compounding verses eight and nine back to back to talk to those people, those of us who are not trying to do so. And there's a reason I'm calling them groups of people. I'm not calling them believers or unbelievers. Obviously, those in verses eight and nine would would be unbelievers from God's perspective. The reason why I'm not using that term is because there are professing believers, people who profess to believe that do this. And so I'm saying two groups of people because I don't want you because when you hear the term unbeliever, if you think you're a believer, then you say, "Okay, he's not talking about me. This might be talking about you. I, I read this stuff like, man, this might be talking about me. I don't get up here and think, hey, I'm good. I'm safe. The scripture says in James 3 that those who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. So I'm not sitting up here like, oh, don't, don't mistake my passion for something that what it is. I, I'm a passionate speaker about God's word. But I tremble and I have to go after the very same things when I read this. And I don't like reading and teaching certain passages because it's not just talking about you. I'm talking about me and I got to deal with that. I got to stand before God and be like, I'm the one that told you this. So when I say I'm not looking forward to certain questions he's going to ask because I already know based by default, my judgment will be stricter. Do you know I pray this every day, Lord, you don't need me to be a pastor here. You don't need me, so whenever you're good, I'm good. I'm good. Like, I've been, I feel like I've tried to be faithful. I got some weaknesses and some errors, but, Lord, you don't need me to do this. This week, I went to an Acts 29 assessment conference, and we are officially Acts 29, and I'll explain that. I'll explain that, and we're doing a, I'll explain what that means in early June when we do a, um, a family meeting, but we are officially now Acts 29. I'll get the paperwork sent to me, I'll sign it, and then it's official. You know what I said to the Lord? Hey, Lord, I'm good if you're good. Like, you don't need me here. Like, I feel like I got the church a part of something that's bigger than us that I think will be beneficial to us. You don't need, like, I'm, I'm good, like, I'm okay. You don't need me to be here. So if you, because I'm not looking forward to being judged with a stricter judgment. I'm good with putting in 10 years, and if the Lord says I'm out, I'm out. These are real prayers that I pray. I don't come up here with passion and teach this as if this is a second personal pronoun here. This isn't about you. This is a we thing. So in verse 8, I look at this as, is this me? When he says this, but wrath and anger to those who are evil, self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. This is really interesting language here. Now, we know that wrath and anger get that. So none of us are really like, okay, surprised by that. But there are categories that God specifically puts out that it's good for us to realize what's happening. If you you profess to believe in Jesus Christ, if we do that, yet we live in ways that are contrary to that and we're comfortable living that way. 
Then it says we're self-seeking. Self-seeking. We're self-seeking. That's an active statement. Understand this. This is an active statement. You are not accidentally unrighteous. You are not accidentally. It is not because you're an introvert or an extrovert. This is not a passive decision. These are active choices. So he says, from God's perspective, he's talking about people who think, feel, and act in honor of themselves. So it starts off with self-seeking. Just my definition of good and evil. Let's do a quick Genesis 3 recap. Genesis 3, what we inherited from Adam and Eve was when Satan said, when you bite the fruit, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. So that means you will decide good and evil like God. You will no longer need God to tell you what wrong and right is. You'll know it for yourself. And so they bite the fruit, and everyone inherits a definition of good and evil apart from God. So all of us have that. And it shows up in very moralistic things to just preferences. When people say, man, I don't like steak, I'm like, huh? <laughs> Hold up, man, you might not even be saved. Like, you don't like steak? Like, how do you not? You never, I mean, you ain't, let, let me grill you a steak. No, I don't like steak. No, I tell people I don't do tomatoes. What? I've had more people correct me for not eating tomatoes than almost anything else. And it's like, um, what proverb is that? Like, I don't eat. Go kill and eat doesn't mean I got to eat all of it. So from even preferences to very moral things, this is right and this is wrong. You know, every time we choose to sin, it's the same thing. Every time we choose to sin, here's what we're saying. My definition of good and evil is better than God's. And God says to resist this, but I want to do it because this is how I feel, and it's self-seeking, and so I do it. And it doesn't matter what it is. And you are not gangster, you're not none of it because you do it. Biblically, you're a fool to do that. And God is going to call you out on that foolishness. It's self-seeking. And then he says they disobey truth. Like, that's an that's a intentional word. They disobey. That's, that's, from God's perspective, that's an active choice. Disobey. And you obey unrighteousness. So you got the obedience of the faith in Romans 1, verse 4. So there's the obedience of faith for people who follow Jesus Christ and the obedience of unrighteousness, people that obey unrighteousness. Those are the two kinds of people in this world. Those whose obedience is of faith and those whose obedience is of self. And, you, and it's, here's how you know it's self, if, if you obey yourself, if you justify your sinfulness, if you justify. If you can find reasons why you're bitter, angry, sexually immoral, gossip and slander, all the things that you can think of, if you can find reasons for that, that's the problem. I'm not saying there's not things that provoke us. Sure. But I can't see biblically where anyone will say he or she made me do it. I don't see it. Well, I just didn't feel like people cared about me, so I talked behind their back. 
well, I just, I just really love them. I love her. I love them so much. And so I had sex with them even though we weren't married. Well, I just, it was, life was hard. And so I'm just, so I just complained a lot. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just a different kind of person. I'm just not like that. So I just judge people who are different than me. Well, I have a problem with the way he or she says this, and so I just self-righteously against them. God's not going to be like, you know what, Ed, I, I would have done the same thing, fam. I would have. That's not what he's going to say here. When we can justify this stuff, that means we presume on grace. See, this is the tension because we do sin in these ways. This is the tension. We do sin in these ways and we know that it's wrong. And some of us, we all have habits and patterns. Here's a question. Do your habits and patterns bother you, though? Do they bother you, though? Do they bother you? When you know the Lord and the Spirit is in you, it's going to bother you some. It's going to bother you. If this is just your personality, then it doesn't bother you. Obedience is happening all the time. It's just, what are we obeying, faith or unrighteousness? From God's perspective, there's no accidental unrighteousness. There are no passive victims. And so he said, this is about being self-seeking, about disobeying truth, and obeying unrighteousness. There's no passivity here. This is important for us because in the culture that we're in, we are very entitled people. Our culture is we're very entitled. And I don't, I'm not even talking about race and all of that stuff about privilege. I'm talking about all of us are entitled. We're entitled people. No matter what you've been through, you're entitled. We have things that other people, there, there are parts even in our country, do you, know, do you know there are parts even in this country where they're so far behind that it would almost be like going back to the early 20th century to live in certain cities in this country. You go into some places in the deep south, or, I mean, I watch these documentaries and I'm like, what? Are you serious? Like, this is how people really live? I'm sitting here. I got a smartphone. I got an iPad. I got all this stuff. I got all this stuff. I got whatever. I got anything pretty much I need. I'm like, man, these people don't have, they don't even know what this is. I, I was like, there's no way. This is not real. These are actors. I watch these documentaries like, wow. Do you know that the United Nations for the last, what is this, April? for the last four months, has been going to different cities in America and deciding whether, you can Google this, not right now, please, and deciding, deciding whether or not they're going to bring charges against America as a nation for having people live in the kind of poor quality that they live in in light of being a first world nation. That's happening right now. The United Nations is investigating whether or not America is so neglecting people 
in its own country that it's thinking about bringing formal charges because you are a first world country, the world power. You have all of this and all of these people have nothing in your own nation. That is insanity to me. Not that that's really just the fact that they're even thinking on that level. It's just insanity. Like we're all entitled people. Especially in this room. So this tension needs to bother us because by entitlement, we feel like we deserve a certain measure of grace that allows for us to stay perpetually mediocre in our pursuit of maturity. And that is not what God is after. That is not what grace is for. That is not what grace is for. So God brings passages like this to warn you, like, is this you? Is this you? Is your Christianity more about self-seeking? Or just your life? There's people in this room that aren't believers. Like, do you realize, do you, I mean, look, here's the reality. You, if you don't believe, I get it. There was a time in my life I didn't believe. Especially if you grow up in this stuff. I'm always thinking about man, my kids. They hear this stuff. They grow up. They might not believe. That's a different challenge. I, didn't, I came from the street. I got saved. I got tired of the street. You go to prison. You come out. You want something real. And so it was more, much more tangible to me that this was real. But not everybody grows up like that. My kids ain't going to have that testimony. If they do, I fail. They're not having that testimony. So they're going to grow up hearing this stuff, and their battle's going to be different because they're constantly hearing this. Constantly hearing it. So they can come to church like, oh, man, my dad's proud. Oh, I don't want to hear this dude talk. And I might not be preaching by them. I'm like, son, well, you ain't got to hear me talk now. But they're just going to hear this. And so you come here, you come to church, and you, you know, you're not tripping, and it's like whatever. You got the attitude and all that stuff. And listen, you are here by God's specific design to give you a chance to experience his grace in ways that if you continue to reject it, there will come a moment when that will happen, I don't know. It could be next week, it could be 50 years from now. There will come a moment when you will be face to face and your life will be laid out in the obedience of faith or the obedience of unrighteousness will be revealed. And you don't want to, in that moment, realize, I made a mistake. I should have does not exist in that moment. I am not trying to manipulate you. I'm just saying with the scripture, this is all the Bible. Read Revelation 7, 27 through 20, 15 when you get a chance. This is just the reality. This is why God tells us stuff like go out to make disciples, talk to people. We're so worried about offending people or not or not doing stuff. We're all my personality. I'm not this. I'm not that. So we not you know we don't want to talk to nobody. And so we love it when people do it and we live vicariously through them. But are we paying attention to the opportunities that are around us? 
From God's perspective, there's no passivity. There's a willful refusal to obey. And because of that, verse 9 becomes the reality. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. The affliction and distress is not talking about this life. It's the eternal life. I don't know about you, but I want my affliction and distress in this life. I kind of, I prefer it here. So I'll deal with all the stuff I don't like. My own sinfulness, my own families, my, the church, the struggles in the culture, the, all the stuff that we live in. California just passed a law that they are allowed to ban all literature, all literature in California, they ban all literature that says any talk of homosexuality as negative or that it needs to change is illegal. That includes the Bible. So if a pastor gives a sermon, if he comes across, if he's teaching through Corinthians, he has to make a decision when he gets to chapter six. Is he going to teach what it says or is he going to skip over it in fear of being prosecuted? Do not think that that's a California thing. That's going to make its way across the nation. It's coming. I've been telling you all this for years. It's coming. I want that kind of affliction and distress. I want that. Because while I'm not intentionally trying to stir the pot up, I'm not going to be afraid to stir it. When it's, if it comes my way. Like it's worth it. It's worth going to jail for. It's worth being sued for. It's worth losing the position for to me. It's worth it. It's worth it. I want that affliction and distress. The affliction and distress in this passage is eternal. I don't want that affliction and distress. And that's the result for people who are self-seeking, who disobey truth, and obey unrighteousness. So here's the tension. We all have some of this in our lives. All of us do. None of us are exempt from this, right? We all do. Here's the tension. What do we do with that? What do we do? If you are fighting, and you are praying, and you're doing the things. Listen, none, all of us aren't readers, right? Let's just be, I don't like to read. The Lord knows that. So he created, he lets you be alive in a time where technology exists that you could actually listen to the Bible being read. We're not talking about streaming other people's sermons. There are millions of pastors that preach better than Mike and I and Carl and all of us. Cool. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a personal intake These things are important to help us fight against being people who are self-seeking. The language, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, it's funny because it says that and we read that and it thinks like it's favoritism, right? Yeah. The verse 11 seems like, I thought you said you showed no favoritism. God, what you mean? This is how some people say, look, God's contradicting himself. He shows no favoritism, but then he says, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Oh, man. 
Okay, so this is about precedence, not preference. This is what it is. It's precedence because salvation came from the Jews, God's people. So God's just saying, when it comes to judgment, I'm dealing with them first. Then I'm getting to y'all. When it comes to blessing, I'm getting with them first. Then it comes to y'all. It's not preference, it's precedence. Salvation came from God chose those people to bring the Messiah to the world. So he's going to deal with them when he says first to the Jews, then to the Greek. He's not saying they're, they're preferable. I'm showing favoritism. He's saying, I came from them, so I'm going to deal with them. It's common. You know, it's this principle. If you have children, it's this principle. You got you. You go out. Y'all go on a date, right? You come back and the house is tore up. You're going to look at Chris and be like this. What happened, man? And he's going to be like, I was asleep. I told him not to. Do it. So, so Christiana and Christian, they tore the house up, right? They're going to get in trouble, but so was he, right? right? Because he was responsible. Okay? That's what this means. The Jews, it's precedence. The Jews, salvation came from you. Like, what are you doing? So we go, I'm going to deal with you, and I'm going to deal with y'all. This isn't favoritism. So whoever tells you that, it's lying. Or they're misunderstood. But glory and honor, verse 10, glory and honor speak and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. These blessings come from the Lord, and he's going to bless those who understand that maturity is not automatic. It takes real effort, hence the seeking part, who seek glory. He sees us and will reward us for our fighting. But he also sees us and will punish us for not fighting, not believing. This passage inadvertently asks the question, which one of these people are you? And I can't answer that for you. But I would say, don't let this passage not speak to that question and you answer it. If you're one who's self-seeking and you know that you are because you're comfortable with sinning against the law and it's, you're not really offended by it, you're only offended when people tell you that you're wrong, you should be concerned. If you're only offended when people tell you that you're wrong, that's, that's reason to be concerned. Because we want to be offended. We want, we want the spirit to tell us that we're wrong. Because that means an ongoing relationship. Ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. Which one of these people will we be? By his grace, the one in verse 7 and the one in verse 10. Because 8 and 9 are going to be the most miserable people, miserable people ever. Next week will be Romans 2, 12 through 17, 12 through 17. We'll keep the party going. Time for a few questions. Adria. Thank you, Nahalia. Ushers can start getting the um, uh, communion ready, too. Um, I, when we get to passages like this, I usually get have some... I need some clarity about, um, like, the judgment that, like, if you are a believer, but, you know, there 
is you're found disobeying and there's going to be a judgment for that. Does that mean you weren't a believer? Or like, how does that work for people who are Christians? There's, you know, I'm, do you know what I'm saying? Sure, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. That's always the tension, right? Yeah. So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. There are two challenges. And one of them is we take, we take people and ourselves by our words and actions, right? So if we profess to believe, and the scripture's clear, Romans 10 is very clear when we get there. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe he rose from the dead, you're saved, right? So there is a sense where our confession and what, what appears to be our obedience should give us confidence in this life that we're saved. I mean, that's clear. But what really gives us confidence is persevering to the end. So people who look like they were believers to us and that we really thought that don't persevere to the end, from God's perspective, they were never believers. So we have to understand salvation is sort of you're saved. When God says you're saved, God is speaking outside of time, right? So he understands. So when he's talking about being saved, he's talking about the completed work. But in, in, in our lifetime, though, in time, the work of salvation is a process. Now, I say I'm saved based upon the confession and based upon my life. But that has to go to the end. There are people that I thought, there were pastors that I thought were saved. And then they, they go astray. And it's like, wow, what happened? I don't know all those details, but only God knows who's really saved. And this is why I don't, this is why we can't condemn other people, right? Because we don't know everything. The thief on the cross, I bet you no one apart from reading that story would have thought that dude would have happened. If you were just there that day and he got killed, you was like, if you, you'd have been like, well, I think Jesus didn't have them, but them two dudes is short, dog, like, whatever. You'd have thought that. They, they make it. And Jesus said to that one dude, today you will be with me in paradise. So it really is salvation ultimately is a God question. Can we have confidence that we're saved? Yeah, because we, we profess to believe and we're living that way. But I think ultimately it's a God issue. It's a God issue. So I'm no, that's why I'm no longer, I'm hurt, but I'm no longer surprised when people that I thought were saved go astray. Or people who do not seem to grow. There are people who I think are comfortably, it's like almost perpetually um, immature. Now, I'm not saying that to be self-righteous. I just mean don't really have a heart to grow and are just satisfied with not growing. And I think there's this question there. There's this real question there. So, yeah, it's, a, it's really a God question. Ultimately, it is. Right here. Yep, Cliff, Cleveland. Why, why does God have to write things in a book when we know he knows everything? Is that, is that just a final thing that he has to show us that what we did at that point? You're talking about like the book of life, like the, when the books are open? Yeah, he's saying the book is open and, you know, it, everything that you did is going to be there. So, uh, you know, why does he even have to have a book? So I'm assuming that that has to be the proof that, we, <laughs> that he needs to give us. Well, partly I think God is an achiever. Right. And so, <laughs> so he keeps a record. <laughs> no, I, I don't. For the, some of you don't know what that means. You'll figure it out later. So, that's a, you know, that's a good question, bro. I, I think God uses analogies. I mean, there may be real books. I, honestly, I don't even know. That's one of them questions. Like, God, why do you need a book? You have everything done. 
I, sometimes I think he, this stuff is for our benefit, but I think, he, I think analogies are often used. Like when God is described in human forms, they call it anthropomorphisms, where we describe God in, in ways that we can understand. Because God does speak to us, right? He speaks to us in ways that we can understand and then in ways that we can't. It's like when he says stuff like, don't worship other gods, right? There are no other gods. There are none. You know it's just you and then Satan. That's it. There is no such thing as anything else. But he'll talk to us because from our perspective, we think they're other gods. So he speaks to us, but then he speaks to us from his perspective is nothing's going on. So with that one, that might be a Dr. Lee or a Carl question. I, 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 think, I think that I don't know why it's a book. That's a good question, though. That's a real good question. Right, that is, you know, I'm going to think about it, though. I'm going to come back next week with an answer. I'm going to think about that hard. That's the type of stuff I like to think about. Yes, ma'am. Um, so I was just curious, how does the Bama seat factor into all of this? The Bama seat? Yeah, the Bema. Oh, the Bema. <laughs> oh, I was like, well, the Bama seat? Oh, let me find out. That's in the scripture? I was like, wow. I thought that was a DC thing. Bama. I was like, wow. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand. What do you, could you give more context? Okay. What do you mean? So the Bema seat is the um, philosophy, I guess. Well, not really the philosophy, the theology that there is the great white throne of judgment in which um, non-believers will be shown all of their actions. And then the Bema seat is for Christians. Oh, okay, okay. You're talking about from that perspective. Yeah. Okay. Who, um, which appeals more to, not appeals, um, which speaks more to um, what was done um, and the right, rewards four crowns, and stuff like I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Leah, Carl may, may, may have to speak to this one. Um, I don't see that in the scriptures, so I think that's, um, I do think, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that, um, um, he talks about it, like describes it as a fire, like everybody's, actions, works will be, go through the flame of truth and sort of the flame, and then depending on what your foundation was built on, wood, hay, or straw, different things will determine sort of your rewards and stuff like that. So there are, there, there's been a lot of teaching like, well, believers won't be judged like unbelievers, but then there's a judgment for what rewards that we'll get and stuff like that. I mean, I know that genuine believers will not be judged, but I don't think what the scripture what, like, what the scripture is describing is sort of the great judgment seat. Revelation 20 says everyone will show up there. So there might be, there's a judgment that it's describing that's heaven or hell. And then I think Revelation 21 and 22 talks about rewards and different things like that. So I don't, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to that. I mean, Dr. Lee or Carl, if you guys have a perspective on that, I'm still, I was still hoping you were talking about a Bama seat, to be honest. But that's just being from D.C., so... That's just DC slang where everything is a Bama. But, um, but I would say ask one of those guys. <laughs> Dr. Lee, raise your hand. Ask him. He might not. Look, he doesn't want to raise his hand either. So, <laughs> all right, good. I just, I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing. There's a lot of stuff, right, that people come up with, and they've taught it as, like, it's the scriptures, and it's, I just don't see that stuff. So I, I, I'm fine with, I think you can speculate on things as long as your speculation doesn't contradict what is scripture. But I've never really, I just, I guess some of that stuff is just like, yeah, that's cool, that sounds cool, but I will just, I'll just see it. There's certain things I'll just wait to see because I don't, I don't really know. But I know who, if you're teaching it as that's what the scripture teaches, I think you are a Bama, and you do need to sit in the Bama seat. So, good, uh, who has the, where's the Holly? The Holly, 
Anybody else? We got one here and then uh, Albie's last because it's almost 12. Actually, and I'm just saying this, I think there is really a great white throne because if you just read like a uh, Revelation 20 verse 11 to... um, 15, yeah. Yeah, 15, because I think that's what really describes what the great white throne is, actually. Yeah. What the great white throne is, and that's basically for non believers and those who are apostate. And um, But also at the same time, I wanted to ask, like, um, like, for example, I know myself, I struggle, I fall short, and even though sometimes when the Holy Spirit's telling me not to do something, I fall short, I, I do fall short in a sin. But, like, what would you say to those who, like, are trying to, you know, live right, but then beat themselves up when they fall short? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think that's where a lot of us find ourselves, actually. So I've said this plenty of times before, so I'm going to use a, a story from Scripture to encourage you. And I've said this before, so this won't be new as soon as I say it. But one of the most encouraging things about that to me, that very thing, because I, we all struggle with the same thing, is Luke chapter 7. Uh, Jesus heals, brings a man back from the dead in a town called Nain. And his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, they run and tell John that Jesus just brought a man back from the dead. And John the Baptist says, go ask him, is he really the Messiah or are we waiting for somebody else? Now, John is genuinely asking that question. He's in prison and he's the one person at that point in time that knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He baptized him. He watched the spirit descend like a dove. But his circumstances were so tough for him that even he doubted, doubted that Jesus was who he said he was. So he tells his disciples, his disciples go say, hey, John the Baptist wants to know, are you really the Messiah or what? And he says, look, tell, tell him what you see. You know, the, the lame walk, the, the deaf have ears and the blind see. But he said, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. And then he inspires Paul to write to Timothy these words in 2 Timothy 2. And these are the things that encourage me about, very specifically about what you're asking. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, verses 11 through 13. I said 2 Timothy, I'm sorry. My technology is moving real slow today. All that being entitled isn't working right now. So here's what he says in, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. He says this. This is saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Okay? So that means if we're dying to ourselves, if we're fighting, we're going to live with him. It says if we endure, we will also reign with him. So endure means... You keep fighting even though you fail, right? There's no boxing match where a boxer never gets hit. Even Floyd Mayweather got hit a couple times, right? If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, here's the most important verse of that passage to me. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It means that even though you struggle and you fall, That's that's different than denying the Lord. Denying the Lord is walking away from the faith. Being faithless is sinning at times despite the fact that you profess to have faith. The scripture says he remains faithful to those who do that because he cannot deny himself. Because he sees us. Because we died with him, so we live with him. His spirit is with us. If that were the case, none of us would have any hope. 
But there's a difference between, you know, there's a difference between, you know, struggling to obey God, but still wanting to do it, and then almost complaining about having to obey God because there are sins you want to give into. There's just, and some of those nuances I can't always say because I don't know you. You know, you can't, don't take what I say and don't say, ask the Lord to show it to you. Because sometimes pastors get tripped up by being so specific. I'm not going to be that specific. I don't want to give you false assurance or give you no assurance. What I want to give you is clearly what the word says, is if you stumble and fall as a professed believer, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It would deny himself to judge you if you are enduring with him. Endurance means you fail sometimes. You fall. Denying means you've given up. You're not doing it. I don't even want this life. There's a difference. Good. Albie was last. On behalf of the church. Oh, okay. Wow. What's up? I think they I'm talking about. Well, Albie's been here. Albie can say that. She's an OG around here, so Albie can say that. That means original gangster, Albie, just in case you didn't know. For just not beating about around the bush and just about the scripture and, and mm. presenting it clearly. And I don't think there's not one person in this room that didn't understand your message today. Mm. And I just, and also I want to thank you for your willingness to go to jail for speaking the truth in, in the Bible about mm. homosexuality and sin in general. Mm. Um, I can't help but think and wish that friends and family that I have know that are not believers. We're, I wish they were here today to mm -hmm. have heard your message because it was just so so touching and so mm -hmm. great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. And hold me to that about, I'm, you know, hold me to, I'm, 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 I'm not desirous to go to jail. Been there and done that. But I'm, I'm, I'm willing for the faith. And I hope that would be the only reason why at this point. Um, when I walked out of the courthouse on February 5th, 2001, I told the Lord, the next time I go to prison, it will be because they're locking up people that believe in you. And so eight, 17 years later, I've kept my word. I'm not looking forward to that, but if it's for that reason, I'll take that. If Acts 4, if, the, if, they, if they counted it as worthy to be disciplined and spanked and suffer for the Lord's sake, all the stuff that Paul went through, I've lived an entitled life. I've had some suffering. Most of it was my own doing, not directly for believing in Jesus. I'm on one time in my life, I thought I was going to be martyred, and I'm grateful that I wasn't, but I was ready to do it, so... There's a part of me that feels like, Lord, give me the same grace that I had in that moment. And if it's, if it's jail, if it's that because they're changing laws and so be it, then God will be answering my prayer about not needing to be the pastor here because I'm, I'm not going to not shy away from it. But I'm not going to all of a sudden do a series on stuff like, all right, here we go. I'm not trying to get arrested. Um, but I'm not afraid. I think you know me enough. I'm not afraid of it either. So 